I tell everybody that the best way to get your points across is to use some sort of media, like a PowerPoint presentation or demonstratives or an animation to keep your audience's attention. The more media and demonstratives you can use, you will engage them more. It also gives you a chance if you need to look down at your notes and look back up. It gives you a moment to kind of gather yourself. Hi everyone, this is David Paul, and on this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Laura Geis. Dr. Geis is a clinical psychologist and litigation consultant who specializes in complex, high-profile, and large-exposure cases. Our conversation focuses heavily on how to craft persuasive arguments, hold an audience's attention, and how nonverbal communication can be as powerful, if not more so, than verbal communication itself. For more than 20 years, Dr. Geis has worked on hundreds of civil and criminal cases driving jury selection, trial strategy, witness preparation, and much more. Whether you're a marketer, content creator, storyteller, or work in the legal field yourself, there is a lot to learn from Dr. Geis's expertise. So check it out. Hi, Dr. Geis. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, so for those who are less familiar with your work, how do you describe your work as a litigation consultant? Sure. So what I do is my background is actually as a clinical psychologist. I'm a licensed psychologist and licensed psychotherapist. And what I do is I assist corporations and law firms with putting on their case in the most persuasive way possible to their audience, which is typically jurors. Uh, what I do is I help them with jury selection, with voir dire, juror questionnaires, as well as focus groups and mock trials. So how did your background in psychology lead you into this field? Did you ever practice as a, as a clinical psychologist prior? Yes, I did. In fact, I did psychology for a number of years, um, gosh, probably close to 10 years, where I worked in private practice and I also worked in hospitals. And as I was getting my license for my uh, doctorate degree, I started working for a firm that was doing mock trials and focus groups. And I basically came on as their statistician to go through the data that they were getting from their mock jurors and focus groups. And it just opened up a whole new line of work for me. And I really was into uh, understanding how the law and the psychology can kind of come together in a marriage that way. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, that leads to what I was I wanted to ask you is is how how does that marriage come together? How how does your background in psychology um influence the work that you do today? Sure. Well, with attorneys, they're focused obviously on the evidence and the elements and proving those elements to jurors. From my background, I come across as taking that information that they have and looking at how it can effectively come across to jurors. In other words, depending on where the juror or the jury selection would take place, LA jurors are very different than let's say Santa Barbara jurors. So with getting that information and that evidence honed well enough to come across to a juror wherever your case is going. A lot of that has to just do with the filters that jurors use. Um, they'll take the evidence that the attorneys give them and filter it through their own life perceptions, whether that's based on their demographics or whether that's based on their experiences or attitudes in life. So I come in from a different perspective than attorneys in trying to craft those themes and those story ideas to the jurors that they're going to be presenting to. So is that where the research component of your work comes into play once you know a venue where something's going to take place? Or do you use 
the, the research side of your work to then understand the lens that the jurors from that area will be looking at things through? Yes, absolutely, David. So what we'll do is I'll meet with the attorneys and we'll go along speaking about the case, speaking about specifics and getting some themes that jurors would be able to sort of sink their teeth into. Then we're going to take those themes and put them on in a focus group or a mock trial setting to see how jurors react to those themes. And what's great about it is we've actually used um, Dollsmith in a lot of our research projects because in that moment, the company and the clients can see through the dial data what is happening with the jurors and how the information is affecting the jurors. And frankly, on the fly, can change kind of some of the perceptions with the themes that they're developing in front of the jurors because we get that instant feedback. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And for those who aren't aware, DialSmith is a sister group uh, to Engages, providing these types of dial testing services. So let's just follow that thread a little bit further. When dial testing is incorporated into a mock trial or focus group, and you're able to learn what those mock jurors or respondents are thinking in the moment, what's happening in the back room? What's going on to influence the actual flow of that group or your ability to test additional things right there in the moment that you might not otherwise be able to? Um, Well, honestly, David, it's priceless because what happens is as the attorneys are presenting before the jurors, we're in the back of the room behind the one-way mirror and we're making notes and we're printing out data and we're talking about it. And for example, when you're doing sort of a plaintiff presentation followed by a defense presentation, followed by a plaintiff rebuttal, which is a lot of the ways these focus groups are put together, that plaintiff rebuttal can change 180 degrees from what we were going to say at the beginning of research to what we end up saying at the end of research because we're getting that information, that invaluable information from not only how our themes came across in our plaintiff presentation, but how then jurors are feeling about the defense and going against those themes. So from Mm -hmm. that data, we can then basically rewrite the plaintiff rebuttal on the fly before they go in there with that information that we learned from actual mock jurors that will help then streamline the actual case when we go to jury and when we go to trial. So when you're doing witness communication training and you're, you're helping witnesses uh, present in front of an attorney or a courtroom or a jury, um, what, are, what are some of the recurring things that you focus on that, that make for um, a witness to come across as either stronger or more credible or, or more reliable? What are some common themes there? Sure. Well, we'd like to separate the witnesses by fact witnesses or expert witnesses. So just to take the expert witnesses first, we let them know that they have this wealth of information. Most of them are going to be PhDs, you know, probably from MIT or something the equivalent of. And we need to let them know that they're not talking to other colleagues they're talking to jurors. Now, that being said, you don't want to talk down to them, but you want to talk at their level. And we always encourage using demonstratives with those jurors to keep the jurors' attention, um, using any kind of um, whiteboard so that you can actually write it out and demonstrate for jurors what you're talking about. And we also talk to them about their body language, their eye contact, their tone, their pace, those types of things, everything that goes into a conversation that you would have with another individual. It's just a little bit different because of the formality of the courtroom, but you're still trying to engage those jurors and still trying to bond with them. Mm -hmm. With the fact witnesses, it's a similar process, 
But with that, you're dealing more with kind of their anxiety and their stress of going on the stand. And that's really where a lot of my psychology comes in, because I will talk to the witnesses even before we go into a prep mode or witness coaching mode, just to find out from them, what are the things that are making them most nervous about their testimony, if anything, and kind of walk through that. Because a lot of times what I've seen is witnesses have a different kind of feeling about the questions that they're going to be asked and how they're going to present as opposed to what the attorneys are kind of focused on. Because again, attorneys are focused on the law and that's their expertise and that's what they need to do. The witnesses sometimes are focused on something else and, and it's a psychology kind of anxiety where I help them get over that and then help them get their testimony to sound bites and give some eye contact to the jurors and facial expressions and body language, et cetera. So extending out from a fact-based witness to even others who might Mm -hmm. be listening to this podcast who give speeches or presentations or have to speak in front of a group where that anxiety does creep in, based on your training and your experience and all the work that you've done over the years, what are some ways that you advise, whether it's fact-based witnesses or others, to be able to reduce that anxiety and be able to get through something like that with a little bit more confidence, a little bit more more calmly. Sure, sure. What I tell everybody, whether they're doing presentations or whether they're going on the stand, is you're the teller of the story and you know the story the best, whether it's you're an expert, whether it's you're a witness, whether you're presenting something that you're, you're presenting to other colleagues. You know your story the best and you know your facts for the best. And so you want to make sure that you own that and have that confidence to then put out there to your audience. I tell everybody that the best way to get your points across is to use some sort of media, like a PowerPoint presentation or demonstratives or an animation to keep your audience's attention. Mm -hmm. So the more media and demonstratives you can use, you will engage them more. It also gives you a chance if you need to look down at your notes and look back up as they're looking at your PowerPoint presentation, it gives you a moment to kind of gather yourself. Because again, you never want to read a presentation to an audience but it gives you a moment as they're looking at an animation, you can glance down and see what your next bullet point is to address. No, that's a really good point. Actually, a personal anecdote for me is last year, I gave a presentation in front of the largest audience by far that I've ever talked to. And it was a new presentation that we had crafted. And while I did Mm -hmm. have slides that helped tell the story, I didn't want anyone reading the slides, but I was able to craft them in a way that they gave me prompts and cues and reminders of specific things that I wanted to say so that if I got a little bit nervous or I got distracted or I lost my way, I could look at a slide that to them is mostly visual and demonstrative, but to me had some little embedded cues that reminded me, oh yeah, I need to say that, or it needs to go in this order. Yes. And that's perfect. And, and of course the rule of three, you know, repeating something three times, it's old school, but it still works. Mm-hmm. So whether you're in court or whether you're doing a presentation to repeat those one or two or three important points, you know, a few times really kind of resonates with the audience and in the jurors if you're doing a trial. Well, let's let's look at the flip side then. Let's look at the attorneys. And when you're helping attorneys with persuasion strategies and you're helping them craft the way they're going to either um, interview a witness or, or speak to a jury, uh, similar to how you took us through the witness communication training, how do you, how do you focus your, your attention and, and assistance to attorneys? Sure. So with attorneys, um, I love to have them kind of give me what their opening statements are going to be. And if we have the time to actually give me the opening statement live so that I can kind of critique not only what's in the opening statement, but how they're delivering it. A lot of the attorneys that I work with are a bit old school. 
and they kind of just like to to speak to their uh, case and their evidence, which of course is extremely important. But one thing that's even more important is before you get to openings is to build that rapport with those jurors in voir dire. And voir dire should not be overlooked in any way because that's the only time the attorney can actually have one-on-one conversation with their audience, with the jurors who are going to be their trier of fact. And the more they can bond with them and have the jurors understand who they are and, frankly, who their clients are, the better it will bode with them later on in the case when jurors are kind of at that standstill 50-50, which side should win. They'll typically go with the side they think has the most credibility, which, again, is typically put, a, put together on the rapport that they built in voir dire. We had one case in particular where um, the attorneys, the, the corporate client actually called me and said, you know, we've lost this case. Um, could you call the jurors and do sort of post-trial interviews to find out what the reason was because the evidence was there? And long story short, I had called the post, called the jurors through post-trial interviews, and they did think the evidence was there, but they didn't feel that the client rep and one of the attorneys was particularly credible, so they dinged the side for that. And it was one of those things where if you had gotten a jury consultant involved at the beginning, they could have gone through sort of some of those issues that the jurors were having with the particular client and the, and the particular one of the attorneys on the team flush that out and hopefully it wouldn't have affected the actual trial outcome. So it is really important. Um, jurors pay attention to the, the smallest things when it comes to attorneys and clients because again, they can't talk about the case on break. So they typically will talk about, you know, was that attorney, you know, was he wearing a wedding ring one day and wasn't wearing a wedding ring the second day? Why was that? Or, you know, what kind of jewelry the client was wearing or those types of things. Because again, the judge tells them they can't talk about the specifics of the case, so they can just talk about the visuals of the courtroom. So in a case like the one you just described, whether it's that one or, or some other, it, it's fascinating the fact that, that they stipulated that the, the facts were there, and yet they questioned the credibility and how that side came across, which seems to be yes. somewhat in conflict w- with one another. So what are the types of things that you've seen that would that would in the presence of um, facts that would, that would otherwise go in that direction could actually um, sway a jury in another direction? Well, for example, um, if you take, let's say, an employment case and you're talking about discrimination or gender discrimination or that type of thing, jurors are looking to see how not only the attorneys relate to, let's say, uh, the, the client or the other side or the opposing counsel, but also how they relate to their own clients. So if jurors notice an attorney maybe not um, giving the, the respect they should to maybe a junior associate that's on their team mm-hmm. or um, their client, jurors will pick up on that. For example, uh, one case that I had, the other side had an uh, attorney and his associate was a pregnant woman at the time. And she was going over and she was bending up and picking up papers and putting them on the desk or would cart in these big boxes that you have in any trial back and forth. And the jurors later on in post-trial interviews admitted, well, we didn't really like the fact that he didn't help her because she was pregnant, didn't help her bring the box from the, you know, bottom, from, from the floor up into on the desk or on the counsel table. So mm-hmm. they noticed those little things and rightly or wrongly, it does affect how they view that side. And really that had nothing to do with the case, clearly but it just does affect how they view that side and the credibility of such. And there was nothing wrong with what the attorney did, but it's just the way that jurors interpreted what was going on there. 
Yeah, well, and, I mean, that, and that happens to all of us in, in everyday life, right? Whether we're dealing with something mm-hmm. in a courtroom or, or business dealings or personal dealings, the, you know, the, the holistic view of everything that we do together um, kind of forms that perception equals reality mindset. Exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, like you said, that's, that's in everyday life as well. People have their own filters that they grew up with, whether it's sibling order or whether it's where they grew up or what county they grew up or, you know, have they worked their whole lives or not worked. They, we all have our filters that we bring to the table. Um, there's no one that really has just a clean slate to, to hear information from. And you have to take that into consideration, whether you're doing a presentation or whether you're putting on, you know, a trial in the courtroom. Oh, that's great. Well, I appreciate all of this feedback, but before I let you go, I do like to try to leave listeners with something tactical that they can take back either to their home or, or to their work later today or the next day. So for those who are listening that are in the business of influencing an audience, persuading an audience, selling a product, or perhaps working with a, with a mock jury, what are, some, what are some tangible takeaways that you think are universal truths that everyone should really keep in mind when it comes to communications and persuasiveness? Sure. Um, you definitely want to be engaging with your audience. You want to storytell. You don't want to be monotone. You want to do some, some background research on the audience that you're going to be going before so that you can really kind of push in on things that are going to be good triggers for your audience to get them involved with your presentation. Um, definitely use demonstratives or PowerPoints or animations to keep the jurors attention um, and any type of analogies you can use that jurors can relate to. Again, whether you're in court or whether you're doing a presentation, it's helpful for jurors to understand and for an audience to understand where you're going with certain things. For example, mm-hmm. a patent case, if I was doing a patent case, that's going to be very different analogies because most people don't have any exposure to patent cases versus analogies I would use in an employment case where most people have had some sort of experience, whether being employer or employee, or perhaps their spouse was an employer or employee. They all have some mm-hmm. sort of experience that they bring to the table. That's great. Those are, those are four or five great points that um, I'm sure will be helpful to many people. Um, well, Dr. Geis, thanks so much for giving us some of your time today. I, I know that you're busy and we appreciate you taking a break <laughs> from, uh, from court today to, uh, to speak with us and, and share your experience. Absolutely, David. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.